Welcome to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. My name is Fergal Byrne. Over the coming months, I'll be interviewing senior business leaders actively working on supply chain decarbonization, reducing Scope 3 emissions in a variety of different industries. We discuss companies' decarbonization journeys, the challenges, their experience and strategies, explore what is working, and identify key lessons and insights. I'm very pleased today to welcome Kevin Rabinovich to the Scope 3 Agenda with EcoVadis. Kevin is the Global VP of Sustainability and Chief Climate Officer for Mars Incorporated. In this role, he leads the corporate strategy for the environmental portions of Mars Sustainable and a Generation Plan, as well as the programme for their direct operations, including more than 400 facilities globally, managing a global portfolio of renewable energy projects. Kevin also leads the assessment of environmental impact across Mars' entire value chain and the translation of external environmental science into policy and strategy for the business. So welcome to the Scope 3 Agenda with EcoVadis, Kevin. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the great supply chain decarbonization work you're doing at Mars. Thanks, Virgil. Very, uh, very excited to be here. But just before we start the discussion, maybe can you just tell us a little bit about your job responsi- and your responsibilities at Mars, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm fortunate enough to uh, to hold the, the title of Global VP of Sustainability and maybe even more interestingly, Chief Climate Officer here at Mars. So uh, I've been at Mars for uh, for 29 years. 16 years ago, while I was working in research and development, I was asked to actually help start our sustainability program. So that's 2007. And I've been in charge of the environmental side of, uh, of our program ever since. What my team does is, is really three things. We are the subject matter experts on climate, water, and land. So we, we interface with the outside world and, and translate some of these topics into what it really should mean for Mars as, as a business. That also means coaching and, and supporting uh, the business units that are actually doing the hard work to deliver the objectives. And of course, setting targets and policies. One area, the second area is we actually run all of the sustainability accounting for Mars. So we do all the math on all the non-financial metrics. And then the final one is I actually have a direct responsibility for our work in renewable energy and carbon credits. Right. You've got a very full, full agenda there, Kevin. How important a priority is Scope 3 decarbonization at Mars? Can you tell us a little bit about some of the goals and targets you've set? Absolutely. The shortest possible answer to uh, how important is Scope 3 to Mars is 96%. Our direct operations, when we started our, our journey in 2015, were 6% of our footprint. Thanks to the work we've done, it's now down to 4%, which means that Scope 3 is, of course, the other 96%. So really, not to downplay the importance of the great work we, we do in our factories and uh, our renewable energy program, but Scope 3 is Mars's greenhouse gas footprint. And that's true of most businesses, particularly businesses in the food sector like us. You know, we're, we're not unusual in that regard. And so, you know, really thinking about that means thinking about not just the, our four walls or the property lines of, of Mars's operations, but really thinking about the extended value chain, both upstream and downstream of, of our business. That said, again, also like most food businesses, the vast majority of our footprint is associated with the agricultural raw materials that we turn into products that uh, the consumers love every day. And on the order of three quarters of our footprint is tied to agriculture. And so really that combined with all the other goods and services that we, we purchase in our value chain mean that what we buy is really what drives our footprint. And, and that 
it's a consequence of, of the value chains and the products we design, the partners we choose to work with, and the way we choose to work with those partners. And so really all of those things come together to both drive our footprint and to create the opportunities for us to do something about that scope three footprint. So Mars recently set a goal to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions across its full value chain by 2050. I'm just wondering how big a challenge is that? Yeah, it's a tremendous challenge and and not just for Mars, but for the world getting to net zero by, by 2050, but it's a necessary one. So when we originally set our full value chain goals back in 2017 and and everyone and the science and the world was focused on two degrees, we had a, a goal of getting to minus 67 by 2050. And, you know, now six years on, the science has moved, the world has moved and, and everyone is pushing for one and a half degrees. And that's what led to the raising of, of our ambition to net zero and, and really the, the broader discussion. You know, I think the challenge is, is immense. And I think particularly in agriculture, but certainly in, in other sectors as well, there are emissions that will be very difficult or, or in the end, ultimately, perhaps impossible to abate. However, that's a small portion of the total. So we're estimating that by the time we get to 2050, perhaps 20% of our emissions will fall into that hard to abate category. So that means the other 80%, including our growth, we will find a way to eliminate and reduce. And that's through universal deployment of renewable energy all the way up and down our value chain, both in electricity and thermal. So getting away from from fossil fuels, it's about regenerative agriculture. In the very short term, of course, it's about eliminating deforestation and land use change. And then also getting into the, the rethinking and redesigning of our products and the ingredients we use, and in some cases, even business models. That's all part of the journey. It's not trivial, but it is also not unaccomplishable. So it is within our abilities. And, and we've done a lot of very detailed analysis and had discussions with our board and our leadership team. And, and so when we set that goal, we did it with a high level, admittedly, but high level understanding of what the economics and implications were. And, and we believe not only can our business absorb it, but that it's necessary for our business to absorb it because you know that, that's the world we want tomorrow is one that is is net zero and and where the climate is protected and and all the people that depend on the climate of course are are protected as well. That's very interesting, very interesting. Now, the analysis and the research you've been doing recently, you have had good data to work with, but that hasn't always been the case. And if I understand correctly, you've been on this journey for a decade or more implicitly if not explicitly thinking about scope 3 and when one starts and particularly back then, there wasn't good data available. Can you talk a little bit about your journey to working at the beginning with, we say, some rough estimates and and heuristics maybe, and over time, the journey to get better quality data? Some companies will be facing this exact problem. I know there are now more tools available and so forth, and one can get better estimates, but it'd be interesting to get your perspective there, Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, we we started our sustainability program in 2007, and it was it was myself and another engineer actually that were were the, the starters of it. And so we naturally came at this whole question from a data and science and numbers perspective. And you know, pretty quickly or, or almost immediately, essentially, it was obvious that climate change was going to be a, a prime focus of our sustainability program. Not the only focus, but certainly one of the the anchor pillars. 
And at the time, there was a uh, the IPCC had published AR4. We're now in iterations of, of AR6, but in AR4, they very clearly laid out the, the math of climate change and, and what was necessary. And so we went, great, that's it. We'll use climate science to set our targets. Off we go. Let's do some math. And we very quickly ran into the situation where for our direct emissions, so scope one and two, since we're talking about scope three today, scope one and two, we had very good data. You know, it was how many kilowatt hours of electricity did we use? How many MMBTUs of gas? How much refrigerants are, are in our chilling systems? And so we could do very good math which meant we could set very good targets and track progress on an annual basis against those targets. And so because we had very good measurement, you could have a serious straight-faced conversation about we want to set a 3 or 4% a year improvement target and track ourselves against it. So great, off to the races. But again, coming from a science point of view, we, we realized that, of course, the greenhouse gas emissions of our entire value chain ultimately mattered. And, and ultimately, we had some level of control and influence over those. So we we set about trying to do the same thing for our full value chain and, and immediately ran into the challenge that the quality of the data, when you look in the broader supply chain, certainly back in 20, 2009, 2010, when we were doing this work, was was quite poor. We didn't necessarily know enough about the details of our value chain. And even if we did, the information to then convert that into greenhouse gas emissions wasn't necessarily good. We found ourselves in a situation where we had estimates that were maybe plus or minus 30% or more on their accuracy. And that's not good enough to have that serious conversation I talked about of, of setting a target where you're tracking a few percent a year improvement. And so... Back then in 2010, we realized what we needed to do was set the target for scope one and two, get on with making progress, and, and we did. In scope three, what we needed to do was invest the time and energy and resources in getting better data. And we did that both ourselves and then in some cases in, in collaborative projects with our peers like the World Food Lifecycle Database, which created more country-specific factors for lots of crops and then put that information in the public domain. And then by 2015, we'd gotten to the point where we felt like we had good enough knowledge on, on our scope three emissions, not perfect, certainly, but good enough to pivot to having that conversation about setting and tracking performance targets. And we did that publicly in 2017 in our sustainable generation plan, and then updated that in 2021 with our changing our long-term commitment to being net zero. But that said, you know, we're, we're still improving our carbon accounting on a year-by-year basis and getting more sophisticated methodologies and improved precision in, in our numbers. But we don't see that imprecision as a, as a barrier to getting going or to making progress. I'm with you. That's very interesting. And do you think that it's necessary to somehow start where you are if you don't have good data, where there are challenges getting good data? Yeah, and I'm sure one of your listeners will think of an example that counters the point I'm about to make. But I think at this point here in 2023, there's been enough work done and there are enough tools and enough resources out there that any business can make a decent estimate of their scope three, three footprint. Either, you know, finding a business in your sector uh, like Mars that, that's done a lot of this work and is, has put some information in the public domain or tapping into sort of generic resources that are out there. And, and I think it's the information that's out there is good enough, certainly for prioritization and strategy setting, right? So an estimate that tells you how many zeros are in 
your business travel or your packaging or your transport or your energy use or whatever the relevant agricultural materials, whatever it is that's relevant to your business. Once you know which are the biggest pools of your scope three emissions, that tells you where to spend more time getting better data. So for example, for Mars, business travel is about 0.1% of our footprint. We're not going to spend a huge amount of time trying to figure out if it's 0.1 or 0.09 or 0.11. We know what it is. And frankly, we know what to do to to, to work on it, which is travel less and, and do more online meetings. But that's not going to be our biggest priority. You know, our biggest priority is going to be agriculture. And so that's where we've invested the resources. And so I think that's the the path to go down is is there's free resources or, or cheaply available resources that can help you make an estimate. And that gets you going. And then you just get on this continuous cycle of the more you know, the more you know, and not seeing it as a barrier, but recognizing what level of precision you need to make what decision. So to set strategy direction, you don't need third decimal place information. You just need to know how many zeros are, are in the, the different parts of the footprint. Right. It is a theme that has come up on, on previous episodes, uh, challenge, lack of primary data, challenges of using secondary data. Yeah, that's a real challenge. But I think we take a, a slightly different perspective on the questions of, of data challenges. And so I think there, there's two ideas. One would be the number one thing you can do to improve your data quality is start using the data you've got in ways that matter. Because as long as you're still treating that data as an academic exercise and saying, well, I can't make decisions, I can't make investments, I can't set strategy because I'm not quite sure about the numbers, there's actually not a huge amount of incentive to make the numbers better. But as soon as you say, well, here are the numbers and they're not perfect, but really we can't wait, we need to get going, we need to make some strategic choices, before making a, whatever the number that's relevant to your business, a $10 million decision, your business leaders might say, well, how confident are we in these numbers? And you go, well, they're good, but they're not great. And they say, well, how much, what, what would it take to get better numbers? And you go, well, you know, if I had $50,000, I could go buy this data set or I could hire this consultant. $50,000 in the context of making a smarter $10 million decision is an easy answer to say, easy thing to say yes to. $50,000 in the context of, well, we just need better data so we can set strategy, that's a hard ask. And so I think start using the data, start making it matter, and that creates the pull and the incentive to invest in, in getting better data. So that's one thought. The other thought, which has really been sort of transformational for us, is people pivot from the data is not available, I don't know what I'm doing, to oh goodness, this is so complicated and, and I, I, you know, we don't really want all this complicated carbon math. It's, it's just confusing. We take a completely different view on, on the complexity of, of carbon calculations. So in my personal point of view, there is no such thing as too complicated of a carbon calculation when it comes to scope three. And the reason I say that is every term in that complicated equation that calculates the carbon footprint of the the wheat that you're buying or uh, the logistics, the transport that you're using, the more terms there are in that equation, the more opportunities there are for strategic breakthrough. If you're buying wheat in the U.S. and the way you calculate the carbon footprint of that wheat in the U.S. is X tons of wheat times Y tons of carbon per ton of wheat as the U.S. average, you have two strategy options. You can buy less wheat or you can wait for the national footprint of wheat in the U.S. to come down. Neither of those are particularly exciting from a strategy point of view. 
But if you start digging in and going, well, actually, I can find different data sets for Nebraska wheat and Illinois wheat and Minnesota wheat. Now you have another option. You can say, well, I can move my sourcing. If you can crawl into that impact factor for the wheat and go, well, you know, part of that is diesel being used in the tractor on the farm. And so I can look for farmers that are using electric tractors or biodiesel. I can get into cover crops. I can get into rotation. You know, so so the more complexity you build in there, every bit of complexity is a is a point to get your pry bar in there and move the numbers from a strategy point of view. So we welcome that complexity. We think others should as well because that's where where the insight comes from. Imagine a PL that just had what you sell it for, what it costs, and your profit. Three numbers, right? you'd never be able to do anything, right? It's exploding the detail of that that creates the opportunity to drive change. Very interesting. Now, you mentioned the, uh, I think it was 96%. Procurement presumably plays a large part here. Can you talk about the challenge for procurement to operate in a world where scope three is tremendously important, how their role changes and how you've approached procurement at Mars. Yeah, I mean, so so I think the organizationally speaking, the number one piece of advice I, I would give to companies is to put sustainability and procurement into one role or at least, you know, marry them very closely organizationally, certainly if you have a large scope three footprint. And that's because, as we talked about, you know, the vast majority of our footprint is driven by the goods and services that we buy. Procurement is the function that is, to use an out-of-date expression, at the coalface of that buying of goods and services. And, um, you know, I think that's why, so for example, at Mars, you know, I mentioned I, I lead what we call the Healthy Planet team, which is our, our climate, water, and land work. I have a colleague that leads our work on packaging and then another colleague that leads our work on thriving people. The three of us report to a guy named Barry Parkin, who is the chief sustainability officer and the chief procurement officer of Mars. And that's because what we've realized over the years is most of what we care about in sustainability is not a product attribute. So the electron that shows up at at the office here that turns on the light bulb, the electron that comes from a coal-fired power plant and the electron that comes from a wind turbine, it's an electron. There's no difference between the two of them. The same is true of all the raw materials that we buy. You know, that the wheat I talked about before, when wheat grain shows up at a Mars factory, there's nothing you can measure in that grain of wheat that'll tell you what its carbon footprint was. Everything that we care about from a sustainability point of view is a process attribute, which means it's not just about the thing that shows up at your door. It's about the process that produced the thing that showed up at your door. And the reason that's so important is that means that we have to change our procurement strategy, because when all you care about is the attributes of the product, you can buy things as commodities. Because this grain of wheat and that grain of wheat, as long as they've got the same moisture and protein and flavor and color and all the other physical properties that we care about, they're interchangeable. So it doesn't matter where they came from. and It doesn't matter who grew them and it doesn't matter how they grew them. But in the sustainability world where you go, well, that farmer used an electric tractor and that farmer used a diesel tractor, Those two grains of wheat are not interchangeable because we care about the attributes. And that means buying pure commodities doesn't work, which is why we've talked about the end of the commodity era. And if you're not buying commodities, you're having to buy in a different way, which now means you're changing your procurement strategy. 
So it's not just adding a sustainability line to the specification or even a carbon line to the specification for the, the commodity that you're buying. You need different ways of buying and different relationships and different ways to create value. And that very quickly becomes not just a sustainability discussion, but a procurement strategy discussion. And, and you need the procurement functions understanding and fully bought into that because this is not a small change in how they do what they do. This is a really significant pivot. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe Mars journey? On the face of it, some people might argue that, well, if you introduce, you know, not quite a sustainability line item, but that could have some kind of impact. What you're suggesting is much, much deeper. Yeah. And, and I think you can very quickly sort of go down the uh, the rabbit hole here of, of thinking about this, but I'll give you know a very concrete example. So historically, we and, and almost any other food manufacturer, we buy electricity on short-term spot market type contracts. So may- maybe we would contract for a year with the utility. And then, you know, the next year we'd run another RFP and we'd say, who can, who can give us cheaper electricity? And in some ways, you know, that's the purest commodity of all, right? It's just megawatt hours. You, historically, you don't care at all where they come from. It's just, will they be there when you need them? And, and what's the price? But as we think about wanting to pivot to renewable energy, we tried to go down that same pathway and say, hey, we, we'd like to buy renewable electricity and we'd run an RFP. And the bids, you know, into the RFP would always come back at a premium to brown electricity or to non-renewable electricity, you know, and that's because there was a shortage of supply. And, you know, frankly, people saw it as an opportunity to make some money because we were asking for something extra. So they wanted to charge extra. And we did a little bit of that in the early stages, but we were sort of dissatisfied with that because we, we kept seeing all this information and understanding that the price of renewables was falling. And in many cases was cost competitive or better than fossil generation, but we weren't seeing that in our procurement. And so we, we dug deeper and ended up getting involved in signing long-term contracts with distinct assets. So the, the first big one we did was a wind farm in, in Texas, and then we've now done it in a number of other countries around the world, and, and then actually a second project in the U.S. And the reason we did that was we discovered if we get involved with a, a project early on before it has its financing, our long-term contract and willingness to buy the power and basically be the counterparty to that developer enables them to turn around and go talk to the bank and say, Hey, my wind farm is lower risk because I've got a customer. You can see who they are. You can see their credit rating and the bank will go, yeah, you you are lower risk. I'm going to lower your interest rate 200 basis points or hundred basis points or, you know, whatever the number ends up being. And so our involvement in the contract actually makes the wind farm cheaper because it lowers their borrowing costs. And in a transaction where you're just buying from that wind farm on a commodity basis, where you might buy this year, you might buy next year, you might not. But more importantly, they had no idea whether you would buy when they built the wind farm and got it financed in the first place. There's no opportunity for us to bring value into that transaction. But when we're involved in these projects up front and earlier, we can actually make the wind farm cheaper by being involved. And so that's the example of, you know, it's sort of the cleanest example we have of, of where decommodification actually serves us not only from a sustainability, but but from a financial point of view. And so what we're hard at work on now is figuring out what are all the permutations and versions of that 
in our broader supply chain. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. What are some of the challenges in moving the procurement, merging, bringing the sustainability and procurement together? Yeah, I think there, there's a number. I mean, you know, like any, like anyone, people in procurement and, and frankly, people in sustainability as well, you know, we're, we're humans and, and humans are averse to change, right? So we all have sort of a natural inertia. And so quite reasonably, people's first reaction is, oh, you're going to complicate my life, right? Like, I got a good thing going. I know what I'm doing. It works. And interestingly, the same is true on the supplier side. So we've been quite happy buying commodities and our suppliers are quite happy selling commodities. And They've built their business models around sort of these anonymized commodities. And we're basically coming in and say, you know, hey, not only do you need to care about a new dimension of performance, which is climate and water and land and human rights and all these other important topics, you know, not only do you have a new constraint you have to work within, we actually think you're going to have to completely change or at least think about completely changing what you do. And so I think it's it's quite natural for, for people to not immediately clap their hands and say, hooray, yes, I'll take some of that. There's a change management journey that, that people need to go on. And, and I think that's where having this tied back to sort of one, uh, the, the bigger picture of what we're trying to accomplish as, as a company with the Sustainable Generation Plan, and then also tying it back to sort of these larger issues. One of the things that we found to be incredibly powerful, really across all the functions of our business, and, and it's just as true of procurement as it is for the others, is we're asked to do things by the business all the time. And often the underlying motivation behind the ask is to improve the financial performance of the business. You know, usually you have to scratch two or three layers down, but, but really that's kind of the motivation is we want to, you know, either sell more or be more profitable or be more successful or whatever. And that's great. We all want to work for businesses that are thriving. You know, we're compensated when the business succeeds. The interesting thing about sustainability and particularly about climate change is it creates the opportunity to tell a different story. You can tell a story about how we as a business are committed to doing something about this problem, which threatens and, and poses a risk to your family, your children, your children's future, the communities you live in, other people all around the world. And then you can ladder your way from, from that big picture concern to, okay, but the specific thing we need to do today here in the factory is look for energy efficiency or in your procurement strategy is think about how do we solve for deforestation or increase regenerative agriculture. But anchoring it back to that bigger picture motivation of wanting to help create the world we want tomorrow is has proven incredibly powerful and, and gets people engaged. And, and I think it, it creates a pathway for people to understand how they can use the skills they have in procurement or finance or engineering or wherever they work in the business, helping them understand how they can use their skills to drive some of these changes and outcomes that, frankly, we all want to see in the world. And, and so I think it's helping make that bridge is really what what unlocks the motivation and incentive. And and I don't want to I don't want to underplay it. You know, this isn't easy and not everything we do is going to work. But I think that that's really the key is is linking it back to that that sort of higher purpose which motivates people in in a different way. Now, can you tell me a little bit about supplier leadership on climate transition? It seems a very uh, ambitious and bold initiative and maybe uh counterintuitive in some ways in terms of competitors or working together. What's that about and what have you learned? 
Yeah. So I'd say the, the most important thing we learned is you got to try a lot of stuff. So it was not obvious when we first had this idea that it was going to work or certainly that it would expand or take off in, in the way that it, that it did. And so this is something that we, if I'm honest, we are pleasantly surprised at, at how well this has gone. So the, the backstory here is in 2019 at Climate Week in uh, New York, we launched something called Pledge for Planet. And the idea for Pledge for Planet was an outreach to our suppliers to, to get them involved in our Scope 3 journey. And, and the very concrete thing that it translated into was the program you mentioned, Supplier Leadership on Climate Transition, or SLOCKED. And what SLOCKED was, was started by uh, ourselves and McCormick and Pepsi. And we basically reached out to our suppliers and said, hey, you know, we really care about our Scope 3 emissions, which are, of course, your Scope 1 and 2 emissions. And we want to partner with you on tackling this issue. And and we know that we've invested resources and time and energy and have carbon accounting teams and, and have you know done a bunch of work in this space. But what we recognize not all of you have. And so what we created was essentially a climate boot camp for suppliers. So we partnered with uh, with Guidehouse, who are a, a consulting group in, in this space, and and basically set up a series of modules that suppliers could go through where they would learn about the basics of climate accounting. They would do an inventory for their business to understand their footprint. They would understand what are sort of abatement levers that they can use to reduce their footprint. And then ultimately working their way towards setting an SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative approved target. So we basically said, we'll, we'll subsidize the training and the onboarding so that you can get on this journey and become the sort of supplier that we want to continue and, and potentially even do more business with. And so it started with the three of us. And I think initially we had maybe 20 suppliers or so that answered the call and joined some of the early cohorts. We now have 14 companies on the asking side and more than 500 suppliers that have either completed or enrolled or somewhere in that, that pipeline of, of that climate boot camp. And so Huge expansion, huge success as far as we're concerned in terms of getting people on the bus and going in terms of, of setting targets. And and the, the reason we did it the way we did it with a few partners early and then, you know, we kept inviting more brands and manufacturers to, to join the asking side of this was on the shelf in the store, we are clearly competitors, right? We're fighting it out for shelf space. We want you to buy our product and not our competitor's product. But when you look upstream in the value chain, it's all overlapped and shared, right? You know, we all have basically the same suppliers. There's very few dedicated, isolated supply chains that only come to Mars or only come to Pepsi or only come to to whoever. And even if there are, sometimes those farmers are growing potatoes for Pepsi in one crop season and something else for somebody else in a different season. And, And so, because there's so much sharing and overlap in the upstream, there isn't really a Mars supply chain, a Pepsi supply chain, a McCormick supply chain. There is a supply chain that we all take different pieces out of. And so it just, it made so much more sense to push for this collectively. And there's a real economy of scale because there are suppliers in that pool who have probably been invited to join S-Locked by 10 of those 14 companies. You know, and if one of your customers asks you to do something, you know, depending how important they are to you, maybe you do it. If 10 of them ask, you probably go, all right, we should probably do this. <laughs> and from a supplier point of view, it also 
it's much easier if you're getting basically the same request from 10 of your customers as opposed to 10 slightly different requests. And so really, it's a tremendous opportunity to harmonize and drive momentum. And who, in terms of the these 500 uh, companies, are members? And what is their level of sophistication or awareness? I'm just wondering, are there a few hotspots that you observe that really need to be covered well in this kind of training? I mean, it, it really runs the gamut. So, you know, we have some suppliers who are already sophisticated enough that they, they don't need something like this. But really, we, we've had quite broad-based adoption. And the one statistic that always strikes me is 60% of the suppliers that are involved in this are not based in the US. And a lot of the companies that are doing the initiating asks, although of course we have global operations, are are US-based. We launched this thing in the US, but we've really gotten global uptake, which I think speaks to the power of this idea. And then frankly, also just the the global nature of of supply chains. Um, We've seen everything from relatively large suppliers to small suppliers who are really motivated and just, you know, don't have the resources. And for them, this support is really transformational. We're still early enough in the program that I think we don't have a lot to point to in terms of performance of suppliers, but we know there's a life cycle to this of you've got to learn, you've got to understand, you've got to set targets, you've got to develop strategy, and then results follow. This isn't a, a crash diet. This is a lifestyle change from a, from a carbon point of view that, that we're asking these companies to make. And these transitions take a little bit of time, you know, not, not forever, but they're not, things don't happen in a year, but they're permanent. And that's really the sort of change we're looking to drive. That's very interesting indeed. Now, I saw a recent report saying that some two-thirds of upstream emissions lay beyond tier one suppliers and in geographically complex networks. Do you include uh, suppliers beyond tier one? Yeah. So this is sort of another principle of how we at Mars think about uh, greenhouse gas accounting is we don't deliberately exclude anything. And so when I talk about agriculture being roughly three quarters of our, of our footprint, very little of that is at tier one. Most of that is tier two, three, four, N, (laughs) somewhere further upstream. Different businesses have different supply chains. But as Mars, we're not particularly vertically integrated. We're often buying from an intermediary who's buying from a farmer or perhaps buying from another intermediary who's buying from a farmer. So so we we look as far upstream uh, and downstream as we can. But I would completely agree with the concept there of at any one stage of the, the value chain, there's often not a lot of emissions. And, and it, it's often the cumulative impact across all the tiers that matter. And, and you know, our, our view would be it doesn't really matter how many tiers away from you those impacts are. You still have a level of responsibility for them because you're choosing to buy whatever the the ingredient or the service or the product is. And so therefore, you have an influence over it. Presumably as well, the fact that they're tier two, three and four makes it more challenging to get good quality data, to understand them. And how have you approached that, Kevin? You're absolutely right. And, and I'll, I'll come back to the discussion about uh, what's your procurement strategy. So what you just said of it, it's harder to get good data about tier three than two and harder for four than three and so on up the chain. That statement's not just true for climate data. That statement's true for everything you would care about. Quality data, price, risk, 
all kinds of things that long before sustainability or climate was a focus, things that were material to your business, the more tiers there are further up, the less you know about them, the more risk you're exposed to, the the less opportunity you have to drive value. And so one of the, the insights of coming back to the procurement strategy is that as you move away from commodities and start to think more about strategic relationships, one of the byproducts of that is you often end up collapsing that number of tiers because it's just not practical to try and manage a strategic relationship through three different intermediaries. And so you end up with a different supply chain and different relationships where you get closer to whatever that tier N at the very start of the supply chain is so that you can get better data from a sustainability point of view, which then has the knock-on benefit of actually giving you better data about quality and giving you a better understanding of, of economics and how you know you can change your behavior as a customer to create more value in that relationship with that supplier and risk. There was a classic example of, uh, you know, and this has happened repeatedly in the automotive supply chain where people think they have very diverse tier one and tier two supply networks, and they discover that everyone was sourcing some component from a single tier three supplier whose factory got wiped out by a cyclone. And so that's the sort of risk that in the pursuit of getting better sustainability data and redesigning these value change, we start to get better visibility and then therefore a better opportunity to manage some of those risks and and resilience, which not just for climate, but certainly for climate are going to become more and more important as we think about the future. I think I came across an interview we were saying in in a way, something that rather than trying to optimize with your existing network structure, supplier structure, you may need to rebuild your supplier structure, restructure it to find the kinds of uh, suppliers that meet your needs. That presumably generates challenges as well with existing suppliers that have been with you for some time, but they may be, you know, in the second tier, the third tier. It can be, but again, I think this is where something like S-Locked is really critical. You know, if, if we've gotten our suppliers engaged and enrolled in the same journey that we're on of trying to get to, to net zero, they've got exactly the same problem that we do. <laughs> and so therefore, we're now both saying, okay, how do we continue our business relationship, but do it in a way that that's going to contribute to both of us being on the path to net zero? And that one resolves some of the tension to hopefully creates the same sort of openness and creativity in them that, that we're trying to engender in ourselves. And that's what we're looking for. And, and you know, that will undoubtedly result in ending some relationships with some suppliers and starting some with new suppliers and more business to this supplier and less business to that supplier. But, you know, frankly, those changes happen all the time for a hundred different reasons. And so this is just a, another one of those reasons. And this is what business is good at, is being given a challenge that can be quantified and then running optimization. So that's really the, the journey that we're on. Fascinating. What's next for your supply chain decarbonization at Mars, Kevin? Oh, well, so we've, we've done a lot of work and we're quite deep into, uh, into agriculture. We're starting to push into other parts of our, our value chain. So there's a lot of work going on and we're doing a lot of work on logistics and transport right now with some of our partners because we think there's really a tremendous opportunity there. And, you know, thanks to some of the, the things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., 
there's a pretty favorable environment for you know making some pretty quick progress in some of those areas. And so that's something we're we and and I personally am, am spending a fair amount of time on. But again, we've got large teams at Mars working on on all the parts of our our scope three footprint. And so um, you know we're increasingly optimistic about the potential to really bend the curve sharply. And and of course, it's the area under the curve that that really matters. And so you know the faster we act the better we'll all be in in the long run when it comes to reducing our emissions. That's a great vision, Kevin. Thank you so much for your time today, sharing with us the great work you're doing. And I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing work. Thank you. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I hope your listeners enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. We hope you found it interesting. I would love if you could share with your colleagues and leave a review. If you would like to find out more about EcoVadis, please visit ecovadis.com.